if you decouple the work of the affordable housing crisis or whatever you want to call it from the work of disrupting and dismantling white supremacist systems, nothing's going to change. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, a podcast by what used to be called the Haas Institute and which is now called the Othering and Belonging Institute. My name is Mark Abizade, one of the hosts of this podcast. And in this episode, we have an interview with journalist and author Lawrence Lanahan from Baltimore about his new book called The Lines Between Us, Two Families and a Quest to Cross Baltimore's Racial Divide. The book weaves together three storylines about people trying to overcome a host of barriers to opportunity and integration in hypersegregated Baltimore and its suburbs. The book is the culmination of years of research and reporting on segregation in Baltimore and draws from Lawrence's 50-episode radio series, also called The Lines Between Us, which was produced for the city's WIPR station. This was our conversation. So, Lawrence, thanks for coming in. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Um, can you just start off by describing the premise of the book and the three interrelated uh, storylines you have going on? Sure, sure. I mean, you had a whole century of discriminatory housing policy in the Baltimore region and most metropolitan regions. Uh, and then the Fair Housing Act came along, and that was uh, supposed to change things. Um, and it was very clear with the uprising and unrest that followed Freddie Gray's death in April 2015 uh, that not much had changed. Uh, that that the Baltimore region was very segregated and that racial inequality was very much tied to place. And so I uh, had done a radio series, a year-long radio series exploring racial inequality and segregation in Baltimore in 2012 and 2013. And um, I was starting to propose a book in early 2015. And when everything happened with Freddie Gray, I figured, you know, that's the way to structure the book. So it's the life of a metropolitan region in a way that refuses to look away from racial inequality and segregation. So it's just uh, five decades of the Baltimore region, um, the, the, the policies and processes that kept it segregated and unequal, um, and a lot of really ambitious efforts to dismantle um, structural inequality. And so the way that I did it, um, I wanted to cover policy, but I also wanted to show the life of the region, people's stories. So I followed two families. I followed a white family who lived in a middle-class, upper-middle-class white suburb who, because of their religious convictions, moved into the heart of West Baltimore, a very poor, uh, segregated neighborhood in West Baltimore called Sandtown, out of their religious convictions to live in solidarity with the black poor. And I followed a black mom who wanted to move her she lived in west baltimore and wanted to give her son better opportunities and was looking for a way to move across the lines between us as it were um out to uh this planned city in the suburbs called columbia that had been built to be racially and economically inclusive in the 60s so by showing a white family and a black family trying to cross the lines between us the lines of segregation and opportunity um in different directions, the, the, the lines between us kind of come out in sharp relief when you see them trying to cross. And then for a third strand of the book, I follow a civil rights lawyer. She's fighting for fair housing on both sides of the city border and files a federal lawsuit to uh, over segregation in public housing. Um, and uh, I mean, I guess I'll spoil it that the, <laughs> the remedy for that lawsuit created special housing choice vouchers that you could only use in... Um, wider, wealthier parts of the region, even even outside the city. 
So through those three stories, I kind of go back and forth. I don't know if anybody's ever read uh, Common Ground by Anthony Lucas, but you just go cycle through these uh, three stories and come out with the story of, of one region and its two separate worlds. Starting out, I just kind of want to set the sort of foundation for the segregation in Baltimore. I like what you did in the beginning is you actually talk about some of their ancestral history, recent ancestral history of the characters, how they actually started off where they did, because a lot of people don't understand that. They don't dig a little bit deeper to find out why are these different populations in the different areas to begin with. Yeah. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I just, there are lots of regions have books that kind of explain um sort of the history of segregation and racial inequality, right? Uh, Arnold Hirsch did it in Chicago. Tom Sugger did it in Detroit. There's a book called Not in My Neighborhood, How Bigotry Shaped a Great American City um, about Baltimore. And it covers like from 1910 when Baltimore was the first city in the nation to enact a municipal segregation ordinance. White people couldn't move to majority black blocks and vice versa. Um, After seven years, the the Supreme Court was like – you totally can't do that. And so um, then there are restrictive covenants in people's deeds, like the deeds to people's houses said you can't rent or sell to blacks and Jews. There were all these uh, redlining, blockbusting, all these policies in the early 20th century that really set Baltimore's racial residential patterns in stone. And what you end up with, there's a, a great uh, professor at Morgan State in Baltimore named Lawrence Brown, and he refers to it as the white L and the black butterfly. If you go from the top center of Baltimore City Go down to downtown and take a, a left and um, go across the waterfront. There's just a, a whole string of majority white neighborhoods with, with a decent amount of wealth. But on to the east and west of downtown, uh, that's the black butterfly, these wings of uh, great patches of uh, racial isolation and poverty. And so it was a lot of official federal and local policy that kind of set those patterns in stone. So I just banged through that in like six or seven pages. It's just like, this is how we got here. And I wanted the rest of the book to be about why it, why it never changes. One of the themes I think that uh, is kind of threaded through the or not a theme, but kind of a debate that constantly gets uh, brought up uh, in the book is the debate between revitalizing an area and actually integrating an area. And there's all these kinds of excuses like we can't integrate because of this and that, but let's just put some money in here. Let's improve housing. Let's improve the schools. Let's do all of this. And at least, you know, that's better than nothing. But you kind of point out in the book that it doesn't really work. Can you kind of explain that? Well, I think, I don't know, I don't want to say anything doesn't actually work because there's work to be done on both sides, right? So what you see in the book is um, the the black community that the white family moves to, Sandtown, which became famous after they moved there for, uh, that's where Freddie Gray was arrested and and the uprising happened. in the 90s, uh, a major developer and the mayor of Baltimore attracted tens of millions of dollars. They wanted to turn Sandtown into a place that had the same crime and anything else that you would see in a middle-class neighborhood, some place where anybody would want to live. Um, people refer to those as, you know, in the policy world as comprehensive community initiatives or um, uh, neighborhood transformation initiatives. Um, some more cynical people call it gilding the ghetto. And so uh, the one theme that I explore in the book is, you know, what does it look like when people come from the outside and try to revitalize a neighborhood that way? And what is the bottom-up community-led work 
look like, right? So that's one way that policymakers deal with trying to deconcentrate poverty and desegregate a place. The other way, which has become more popular in the last 30 years, is housing mobility. Instead of bringing opportunity to these places, they say, well, you know, these kids are in harm's way and the opportunity is in the suburbs where the crime's lower and there's more jobs and stuff. Let's move them to opportunity. It's called housing mobility. And so that is what happens with Nicole. She gets some federal assistance through the remedy in a uh, civil rights lawsuit to, to move out to, uh, out to the suburbs. And so that has actually moved a lot of people to, I wish they would call it moving to where the opportunity is because you don't move out there and automatically get it. And there are criticisms of housing mobility that like, you're kind of like leaning too hard on meritocracy, right? You just get out there with the opportunities and you'll get it. But Whiteness follows wealth. Blackness gets penalized. It's just how it happens in America. And so to be black in a high opportunity area doesn't necessarily mean that you get that opportunity. I mean, I live in a rare part of Baltimore that's racially integrated. It reflects the demographics of the city. It's like 60% black, 40% white. Um, it's economically diverse. Um, and after Freddie Gray, I remember walking around my neighborhood the next morning thinking like, well, we got it on paper, right? We got it. We got what we need on paper. Is this doing anything for black families? Is there equity? And I don't think the answer is yes. Um, so there are challenges, to say the least, in moving people out to where the opportunity is or trying to bring the opportunity to poor black neighborhoods. Um, what happens is those two um, strategies get pitted against one another when the resources are really tight, which they are. Um, so Barbara Samuels, this fair housing lawyer, just kind of you follow her through that strand of the story. And she walks through all these crucibles in which those two strategies are pitted against one another, right? Like, and what she sued the city and the, um, and HUD saying like, you know, you guys segregated public housing when you built it. Now you need the, the white counties to take their fair share. And the city was just like, look, we're doing the best we could with the resources we had. We're trying to bring a little opportunity to the city. This county doesn't even have any public housing. Um, and then you see developers fighting because they're like, we, we want federal tax credits to do affordable housing. Um, and there's only so many tax credits. So we want to do it in the city where the poor people already are. And then people say, well, the Fair Housing Act compels fair housing choice everywhere. So you need to build some low-income housing in high-income areas. Then you try to do that. And politically, it's really hard because white people flip out. They're like, we, they, even like I grew up in a white suburb outside Baltimore. And um, when I was doing the book, my mom was like, oh, you're going to want to check into this. Um, people in Bel Air are starting to talk about, oh, they're putting Section 8 in. People don't really know what Section 8 is. It's a voucher to move into an apartment. It's an actual apartment in most cases. And she's like, you should look and see what this is about. And I went and looked, and they were building a new apartment complex. And I went to see what kind of apartments they were. They were luxury apartments. People saw apartments and were like, ah, Section 8, when it's like people richer than them moving in. <laughs> so, I mean, you just, to, to, to create even a small change in a, in a segregated landscape, it's just epic. And I mean, Baltimore is a place where you've seen some major experiments to do it. And they're incredibly inspiring, but they get comparatively very little purchase on uh, any kind of equity or desegregation in the region. You mentioned a little bit about the uh, about Barbara Samuel Barbara Samuels. Yeah, Barbara Bar Samuels. Barbara Samuels and um, the lawsuit against HUD and also the city of Baltimore and in the the Henson. What was his title? Oh, Dan Henson, the uh, housing commissioner. Right, a former housing commissioner, Henson. He really came under fire during this trial because uh, you know they're saying, well, we're, we have to revitalize these areas. We can't really do anything. 
about integration within the city of Baltimore itself because white people don't want to live with black people. And then there's a quote here uh, which really illustrates this. He says, in the court, he says, Baltimore is a city of either black neighborhoods or white neighborhoods that Baltimore had a segregated housing market because the arrival of black families reliably triggered white flight. So white people keep, keep running away. So, I mean, he can only do so much within the city of Baltimore. And then the judge talks, he starts talking to HUD, the you know, federal people are saying, well, did you guys try regionalization? Did you guys try this and that? So there's different kind of approaches trying to solve this uh, hyper-segregation, high-poverty crisis. And so what do you think about, about that, about kind of the, the, the limitations to what the city itself can do and how, how we can partner with other regional actors <laughs> yeah, to be able to solve some of the issues? That's the question. I mean, like, Take my street up in Northeast Baltimore, right? It's, uh, I've got two vacants on my block. Uh, one of them, they've, the owners let the weeds get all the way up to the fence, um, and it attracts drug dealers, and it just creates a, a, a harmful dynamic on my block, right? And there's another vacant at the other end of the block, and that's starting to happen. Take a while, guess how many of those two houses have owners who live in the city? Take guess. Zero, one, or two? I don't know. Zero? Zero. Zero. They live in the county. So when President Trump says, you know, Baltimore is a dump and it's Elijah Cummings' fault and all this stuff, you know, it's like my block looks the way it does because of people who live in the counties and refuse to take care of them. One guy, I used to call him like, hey, man, can you cut your weeds? And finally, he was like, well, you know, uh, the city's the city law always just cut it for me and send me the bill and a violation. And it's like you're dragging city resources from the county. So I don't believe there are city problems. I believe there are regional problems. And so it makes it really hard when outside in Baltimore County doesn't have any public housing. And there's like what a former housing commissioner called a one way street for the poor from from the suburbs to the city, the low uh, income, the low rent. Uh, rental market is in the city. Um, people who live in the suburbs want to commute downtown to the city, so they turn our main streets into highways. I mean, it's just like a totally regional dynamic. So um, the governments, the regional governments do have, a, there's a metropolitan council where sometimes the local governments get together and talk about this stuff, but there's no structure to to do anything very concrete. Um, and there's been talk about merging the city and the county. Politically, I think that's almost impossible where I am. They, they were trying in St. Louis, and that kind of blew up in their face. Um, so when you talk about cities like Baltimore, it has to be a regional solution. And anywhere, you have to deal with housing and school segregation at the same time. In Howard County, a wealthy county and pretty liberal county just outside of Baltimore, the superintendent and school board have proposed redrawing school boundaries. Like you might end up going to a different school than you used to. And they're doing it because some schools are overcrowded. Some schools are undercrowded. They want to even it out. But they said, we're going to put equity into this. We're going to do this in a way so that no school has more than 50% poor students. And they're going to have 7,000 students change schools. And the wealthy white communities are freaking out. And they're like, you do this and we'll move. Right. So you make policy in in schools and the housing shifts. You make housing policy. We're going to put low-income housing in a high-income area. 
and and people will move white people will move um to a place for for a school district you know i took a picture of a sign i saw outside of a wealthy public elementary school or public elementary school in a wealthy community it said invest in the best good schools mean high home values right you know and it's just like it it was clear as day they said the quiet part loud of just like is, is it is it good good schools mean high home values or is it the other way around high home values mean good schools and what's good it's just a whole bunch of white students that the resources follow. And so you've got to deal with it regionally and you've got to deal with it um, at the school level too. And you, like you're seeing bold moves in various places, right? New York City might be getting rid of the selective high schools that kind of aggravate segregation. Minneapolis is uh, banning single family zoning. You can't have a zone, a housing zone that is only single family. Now you can build duplexes and triplexes there. And that, that is, that is, you know, will create some affordable housing. But I mean, I, is there a region that has taken the school and housing fronts on at the same time at a regional level where people can't just play whack-a-mole and pop up in another community because they don't like what's happening in the housing of the schools? I mean, no. And from Washington, you're, they're dismantling all these tools like affirmatively furthering fair housing and disparate impact. And I apologize if you're not a lawyer and you don't know what those things are, if you're listening, but these are tools that the government has to allow accountability for these policies that have a disparate effect on minority communities, even if you can't catch them being racist, even if there is no um, discriminatory intent that you can, that you can prove like affirmatively furthering fair housing means you have to take proactive steps to dismantle the segregation that the government created in the first place. You know, you got to like every five years, you do a report where it's like, here are the impediments to fair housing. Here's what we're doing about it. And if HUD doesn't like your report, they can withhold federal funds. Everything you've just described, it just it shows the all the resistance to integration, whatever their motivations, home values, safety, all, you know, all these kinds of ideas. There are some minor exceptions, like with this with the story of Mark, Mark and Betty Lang mm-hmm. and then their friends, the Tibbles, who came to Sandtown, who moved from the wealthy suburbs to Sandtown, one of the roughest, highest poverty areas in Baltimore. Yeah. But I'm kind of curious because you started painting this picture of Soundtown, a really kind of rough area. But then when they came in, inspired by um, John Perkins, John Perkins, by kind of his philosophy, the three R philosophy. Yeah. You talk about Mark and his angst, you know, he's feeling something wrong. with Yeah. Him. Why was I born white in America? Right. That's, exactly. Yeah. He has this kind of uh, this feels a spiritual need to, to do something. He feels I don't know if you call it guilt or whatever it is, but he feels like he needs to make this move. They make this move. Just a handful of these white families end up doing this, and they live. And some black. I mean, it's also like higher income black people move with them too. Can, so I have. So can you kind of describe that kind of the philosophy of John Perkins? This kind of model is right. Christian community development model. Yeah, sure. And uh, and then I have a couple of questions about yeah. that. Sure. Well, I mean, when we talk about the lines between a segregation and everything, and it comes to policy, it's often about moving people out of places like Sandtown, right? And my thing is just like, what is the obligation of the white person in a region that was segregated for his or her benefit, right? Not a lot of grappling with that. Not a lot of burden on white people for um, deconcentrating poverty and desegregating. So I was really interested in this Christian community development movement. And what it is, is John Perkins, he was part of the civil rights movement in Mississippi. um, And he got tortured by the Mississippi State Police. And he had this... Um, experience of I can either hate the white man or I can love him. And he decided to go radical and love him and make racial reconciliation part of his uh, 
his work. So he had already done like a lot of like cooperative grocery stores and low income housing and like lots of community development through his church in Mississippi. But then he came up with this whole philosophy. And one of the, one of the things was you cannot help um, a poor community, a poor black community, unless you're living there. Those people have felt needs. You got to feel them that you can come in and with your bright idea and make things worse. So he, he came up with this three R's um, philosophy for community development. Relocation is the big R, right? That is, you've got to move to this place. Um, and, and if you really want to help it and have the same things at stake, you know, um, the second one is redistribution, which is not like communism. It's just, if you are white or, you know, upper middle class black and you move into this community, your networks and resources are going to follow you and you got to make sure they're used for the benefit of the community. And then reconciliation, racial reconciliation, you build racial and economic bridges and, and the community development and economic development will, will grow from that, uh, that, that, uh, togetherness. And, um, and I mean, the concern, right. Is like when, I mean, white people already do move to black neighborhoods, but they do it for like coffee shops, you know, and this is for Jesus, but you know, gentrification is still, you know, a, a thing, but the white people really come in with this attitude of, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to listen. Um, I'm going to, you know, just help the leaders who are already there do what they feel like needs to be done. And they really don't want to be thought of as white saviors and they're, they're fairly self-aware, um, you know, so, so that's, that's the movement is to like come in and, and you have this place of worship that serves as like the, the, the place where these neighbors, where these souls bind. I mean, it's, 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 it's a deep, deeper thing than just like building a low income apartment complex in a, in a neighborhood hoping something changes. Okay. There are a lot of positive outcomes from this sort of model that you detail in the book. And it seems like a really great thing. Like, well, you know, this is, this is awesome. They're transforming this neighborhood. But then you get to the end of one of the chapters and it shows, in fact, Sandtown is still super segregated, super high poverty, still a lot of drugs, still the worst schools, and maybe doing better here and there. But comparatively to other uh, neighborhoods in Baltimore, it's still faring worse, the same or worse. So you know, despite all those valiant efforts to try to transform this neighborhood, did it really succeed? And if it didn't, based on these indicators, why did you even profile this kind of model if it didn't really seem to have a sort of a, an effect in the larger scheme of things? Well, I think part of the reason I did it is because within this idea of place-based development, within the Sandtown story, I wanted to have two stories to compare. Right. And one of them was, you know, the mayor and the big developer came into Sandtown and had all this money that came in and um, they tried to make it a community based thing. They created uh, an organization called Community Building and Partnership and tried to grow a generation of leaders to carry it forward. That was the kind of the top down approach. Right. With like all the money. And then I had the bottom up approach of like starting from a church. The church only picked 15 out of the 72 blocks in the neighborhood. And they, um, they created a, sand, uh, a Habitat for Humanity chapter, and they, they built 300 houses. And the, like, the thing the mayor did built way more houses, but the church had relationships with people in the houses. There was a community around their, around their place of worship. Um, the, 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 the church-led thing created, um, got a doctor to set up shop and do primary care for people. Um, they had a jobs program. They had, and so I think if you look at it at the systemic level, neither of them succeeded in transforming the neighborhood. If you look at the effect on individuals, 
I could introduce you to people in Sandtown for whom both of those efforts had in, in, an incredible uh, outcome, if you want to talk about it in terms of outcomes. Um, there's like a dozen, dozen and a half people who relocated to Sandtown. There's 10,000 people in the neighborhood. This was a really small thing, and what they did was fairly outsized. They were punching above their weight. But at the end of the day, you know, it was like, what, 12 or 15 relocators, probably 150, 175 people in church on Sunday tops. So it's this, it's for what they did, you know, if, if people could, um, if more people chose this way of doing community development where you have, um, people having the same things at stake, they have relationships. Um, I think it would be more effective. Can anything within the neighborhood change a neighborhood like Sandtown? You need resources from outside. You need resources from outside. You need resources from outside. And um, I don't, I would not characterize either effort as a failure. Um, I wouldn't say it was a failure of the people who were trying. I would say it was a failure of a region that had so many things in place to punish these places. I mean, I talk about the uh, metaphor of quarantine. I mean, early in the 20th century, it was literally treating these neighborhoods like a quarantine. You had 20, the black people were 20% of the city and they lived on 2% of the land because they weren't allowed to live anywhere. There was like a lot of tuberculosis and the progressives of that age who progressive meant you were into eugenics back then, you know, were like, this is a public health thing, you know, that that's the quarantine idea, but they, even if they didn't cop to it, they're trying to contain crime. They're trying to contain, you know, social issues. And you could argue that the kind of policing you have in Baltimore and three quarters of the police in Baltimore live outside the city. They come in and they enforce the lines between us. They contain this stuff. You don't see things like you see in Soundtown in neighborhoods with political power and resources. So when you've got that much pressure from the outside, insisting that these places remain the way they are, nobody's going to come in and do it from the inside. It's a regional problem. So I feel like to the extent you're doing things in the community and trying to bring opportunity there, I mean, there's great organizing in Baltimore. The Baltimore finally got an affordable housing trust fund. Uh, they put it on the charter and then they got the city to fund it. So there's going to be $20 million a year for affordable housing. And the organizers are organizing to make sure that the communities stay in control of how that money is spent. They, um, the city's about to start spending money on this. And they are like, you put equity first. You do permanently affordable housing, not like something where in 15 years it turns over to market rate. And they want community land trusts, which is when people in the community buy the land in the community and decide how it's best going to be used. Maybe they do a few houses that are going to be affordable for rentals or um, affordable to buy and will turn over to somebody else that will buy them affordably. Um, it's about communities gaining control of what development is going to look like. And Baltimore is not like San Francisco or Seattle or whatever, where like everybody wants to move there and everybody's getting displaced and it's getting expensive. It's a different dynamic. We are just like people are leaving Baltimore. We've got vacant houses. Um, but you do see developers kind of roll over black communities sometimes. So I feel like I don't think that you abandon the approach of bringing opportunity to places like East and West Baltimore. You do it in a way that you make sure you figure out who the leaders are, you listen to them, um, and you develop it in a way that, that they want to see it developed. And you reform the police department so they're not just, you know, locking everybody up for nothing. Um, you desegregate the schools. I mean, there's so much other work than just like going in there and building a few houses and like 
having a, a jobs program. I mean, people won't even hire people with records and so many people in these communities have records. It's, it's a ton, a ton of work. Um, but it's, you have to believe, I'm not like the most hopeful person in the world, but you have to believe it's doable that places like West Baltimore can change. One of the things the book does is it, it reveals a lot of the, the racial wealth gap, especially in, in housing, because you look at the white families who are in the suburbs, like Mark and Betty Lang and, you know, the Tibbles, and they have all, you know, these properties and, and, and they keep on, they keep on increasing property value. They have you know, they gain all this equity. They're able to kind of to move where they're able to divorce and each buy a house and then they're able to, <laughs> to move back together. And, and so they have a lot of mobility there. Yeah. And then contrast that to Melinda. She's the black mother in Baltimore. What does she do? She buys a house thinking it's a good deal, except what happens, she ends up owing like twice what the mortgage is more than twice the, what the mortgage is. And then there's a part in the book where you talk about how, and I think like 2007 or something, 2007, 2008, they, they have this mortgage crisis that hits uh, that hits uh, a section of Baltimore, and uh, she loses her house. It gets foreclosed on, and it reminded me of something that John Powell said once, like a year ago or something. He was giving a talk, and he talked about how actually the mortgage foreclosure crisis it actually hit the black community like a couple years before. It knocked them way back. Yeah, I, I never heard that before, and then I never like dug into it. But then when I started reading the book. It reminded me what he said, and then there's another section too where it talks about in Sandtown and like from 2007, 2010, did like 10,000 homes. Or I can't remember. It's just a lot of foreclosures. It was a, it was a huge foreclosure. It's like, what is the role of kind of private institutions like banks, for example, and their predatory schemes in exacerbating the crisis there? Well, yeah. I mean, like Nicole's mom when she finally buys a house, one, she was so in Baltimore, you, tenants have right of first refusal. So um, the guy that she was renting from, he wanted to sell and he had to ask her first if she wanted to buy it. And he's like, you want to buy it for 32000 And I went into the records and he had bought eight properties at once for however much it was. He had bought the house for $8,000. So he was, that was like an exploitative price. And then um, when she got, uh, uh, when she finally did buy a house, she got the mortgage from the woman she bought the house from and the mortgage rate was like twice the national average and it was totally exploitative. Um, and the house needed work. So she got a home equity line of credit. Um, and so, uh, she didn't understand the terms ended up with a balloon payment. So, I mean, you see that more in black communities. And then during the, the real estate bubble in the last decade, you had, um, banks partnering with black churches trying to encourage homeownership, but they were offering subprime mortgages to black families that could use prime mortgages. And so Baltimore sued Wells Fargo with a disparate impact lawsuit um, saying like you disproportionately targeted, you know, black communities for these loans. Now we have these foreclosures all over the city sitting there vacant and, and screwing up the, uh, the neighborhood. And um, they the the bank settled Wells Fargo settled with Baltimore over that. So you do see, and that's part of the racial wealth gap. I did a story for the radio series. I did a radio series about inequality before I did this book, and I uh, did a story about an eighty eight year old black World War II veteran. Right, he comes back from the war and he does exactly what he's supposed to do. You know, he he gets married and he uses his GI Bill to buy a house and he gets a steady job um, and you know, 
you're black, 1950, you can't buy anywhere you want. So he bought where he could. He actually managed to buy in a white neighborhood in Baltimore. Four years after he bought, it was a black neighborhood. And it was disinvested, and it crumbled around him. And he ended up with a home equity line of credit that tripped him up, and his house went into foreclosure when he was in his 80s, right when he needed to go into assisted living. And lucky for him, his niece was doing pretty well. She was a lawyer, and she kind of like took over for him trying to help all this stuff happen. But she was able to help him get into assisted living. And But when she was taking care of the house, she was getting short sale offers for like $11,000, $20,000. In 2012, he bought the house for like $6,000 in 1950. And he didn't live to see this, but it was his neighborhood where the um, the unrest started. It was Mondaman. Like he didn't, thank God he didn't live to see that, but his community got even, like that community has, the reason that the kids were throwing bricks at the police, because there's so many vacant houses there. They're easy to come by bricks when your community is, is literally crumbling. And that's where, that's where he lived. That's what his community turned into. So, I mean, the racial wealth gap was bad in the first place. I mean, people, middle-class people build most of their wealth through homes, not investment, right? And you know, I forget what the percentages are. Like white white Americans have way more times the wealth that black and Hispanic families do, and so much of it has to do with housing. And when we don't do anything about what I'm talking about here, it compounds everything. So when the foreclosure crisis hits, black communities get killed by that. And they have their home ownership rate is lower than it's been in 50 years, and they lost tons of wealth. Um and, you know, when you're growing up like I did in the white suburb outside of Baltimore, and the only experience you're getting of the city is mediated by TV or what people in that suburb are telling you, like, you just look at Baltimore and you're like, boy, that place has a lot of problems. Roll up your windows when you drive through, and you just assume that the, that the problems come from the people who live there. And it takes a lot of research and a lot of paying attention to understand how your own passivity and, and the people that you elect create the conditions and maintain the conditions um, that you thought were just people's fault. That's absolutely right. And one of the things that it reminds me of when I was reading the book and seeing all the resistance in the suburbs to integration and bringing all these people like, you know, they have the stereotypes and see the images and everything you described is it reminds me of the kind of at, at the national level of policy we have uh, on when it comes to immigration, for example. I see something like very uh, stark parallels between how they try to shut people out, how they say these people are a threat, these people are going to come in and they're going to bring crime and drugs and violence and all this sort of thing. And it's like, whoa, you know, we're talking about the Muslim ban or if we're talking about, you know, building a wall, shutting border, like all these kinds of things. It's like you bring it down to the community level in the suburbs of Baltimore or anywhere else in this country for that matter. And it's like the same the kind same. of conversation. And it's in the North, not just the South, right? You right. Know? Exactly. In the well, in here in the Bay area, wherever, yeah. wherever yeah, it yeah. is. And I started thinking like the sentiments of the people are, I don't, I don't think that all these people who are saying, no, 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 we don't want these people would necessarily describe themselves as white supremacists. But I, I think that this is really like a white supremacist sentiment that they've internalized, even if they don't, recognize that absolutely and i'm wondering how do you how do you overcome that you destroy white supremacy i mean you have to understand it as a systemic thing and not just you know like um people think they hear the term white supremacy and they think like somebody's under a, under a white hood you know kkk type thing doing something and white supremacy happens behind a desk too and um 
it is I talk about this book when I go other places like you know I say the song remains the same just each region changes the tune a little bit right like here you're trying to deal with displacement and I mean there's definitely displacement in Baltimore but it's just we have hyper segregation you guys hyper have hyper displacement and um but when I say the song remains the same I think the song is white supremacy and it is the system that I mean supra in latin means on top above and white supremacy is just a system that keeps white people on top, politically, socially, economically. And uh, we programmed that system a long time ago. It's on autopilot, and we've never deprogrammed it. And the Fair Housing Act was kind of an attempt. The Civil Rights Movement was an attempt. But you can see we have a lot of unfinished business. It continues unabated. And now you've got it being, like, incited from the highest office in the land. Um, and... You know, when you say that you notice the the, the um, similarities between what people say in the suburbs in Baltimore and what people say about the wall at the border and what people say about the Muslim ban, you were, I agree with you 100%. And uh, boy, do I have an essay for you. I wrote an essay uh, for Slate a couple months ago exactly about this. I, I think it was called Trump Tried to Build a Wall Around West Baltimore. Um, and there's a sociologist named Michelle Lamont at Harvard, and she calls this boundary work about how symbolic boundaries turn into social boundaries. So you isolate, you know, the way Trump did it in his campaign was he would draw boundaries around white workers, whatever you think that is. And he would draw a boundary around them and tell them that it's not their fault. It was globalization and they're the best. And above you are these elites, cosmopolitans trying to screw you. And, you know, below you are whatever, Muslims, brown, black people, whatever, Mexicans. Um, and he, you know associates black and brown faces with scary black and brown spaces and um and creates those boundaries the symbolic boundaries of like you're here you belong here they're there they belong there i mean you got a podcast about belonging i mean this is exactly what's going on and so um he you you create these symbolic boundaries of like oh i deserve these I deserve this wealth that follows me into this community, whatever they deserve, whatever horrible things they're getting. And then they translate these symbolic boundaries into social boundaries, into policy, into physical structures like a fence to keep people inside of a public housing complex and out of a white community. The symbolic boundaries become social boundaries and policies that reinforce the notion of who belongs where, who gets to live where, where the resources go and who deserves to live among their own kind and not around other people. So you see it when you try to put low-income housing in a high-income community in Baltimore. You see it at the southern border of the United States, and you see it in the Muslim ban. The book starts to close with uh, the death of Freddie Gray. Uh, the, the Freddie Gray chapter is a little bit different from all the other chapters in that it's kind of like a play-by-play -play of what happened after his death, starting with his death and then the uprising that ensued. Can you kind of talk about the the killing of Freddie Gray by the police and how that fits into the larger context of the book and why you organized the chapter the way you did? Yeah, no, that was like my most experimental bit of writing in the book. And I like, so, so the, the, the book is like six really long chapters. Um, it's not like short chapters and like, um, I just, that event was so pivotal and so important for my region. I just wanted to set it off from the rest of the book. I almost put it, my editor and I talked about putting that chapter in a different font. We decided that would be a little bit too on the nose, um, that I had to do it through the writing just to make 
distinguish it from the rest of the book. Um, you get to that chapter and it's structured day by day and you see the events leading up to and following uh, Freddie Gray's death. Um, I don't tell you this happened, this happened, this happened. I let it all happen through the eyes of characters that you've mostly already met, right? It's, it was like, I was just trying to be slick, you know, like bringing all these people into the story earlier and you're going to see him in the, in the, in the Freddie Gray chapter. And, um, and I set it up with at the, at the chapter that right before the Freddie Gray stuff starts, um, I have like premonitions of this where like, you know, the month before Freddie Gray, Doug Massey, the sociologist who had written the book American Apartheid in the nineties did a study of, uh, segregation in America. And he said, there's 10 hyper segregated regions. Um, right. And surprise, surprise, nine of them are in the North. And, um, he said, you know, as I'm writing this, the national guard is in Ferguson, Missouri because of Michael Brown's death being shot by the cops. And, he said, this is one of the seg hyper-segregated regions. And he said something like, you can, if we're going to keep having this kind of civil unrest, you can expect to see it in the hyper-segregated regions. And you turn the page and Freddie Gray dies. And, or, you know, dies of injuries he got in police custody. And um, so I just wanted people to see what happened that week from the inside out. Um and you see him arrested in front of a line of houses that Habitat for Humanity had refurbished. Um, and you see Mark calling Betty, his wife, telling her, don't take uh, Gwyns Falls Parkway home. Come into the neighborhood from the south because um, the police have riot gear out in front of Frederick Douglass High School. Um, and it's just like, I would hope that you can't read that chapter without seeing all these explicitly and covertly discriminatory policies coming to fruition, like almost cause and effect. Um, you see this community just absolutely blow up um, and seeing it right after seeing 50 years of us failing to um, fulfill the, um, uh, the, the sentiments in Brown versus board and the fair housing act. It's just, I was hoping that by changing the style of writing and just everything just different from the rest of the book. I really wanted to set it off. Like, do you understand how important this is? Do you see what happened to our community? Um, do you see that we have two worlds and that, you know, the Kerner commission said in 1968, Oh, well, the reason that black ghettos are rioting is because white society created the ghetto and maintains it and condones it. Oh, it's 50 years later, the same exact thing happened. Um, so that, 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 and I, and I wrote it, um, the, the, the passages in that chapter are shorter than the chapter that precedes it. So it's like, boom, 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 boom. It just hits you like, hopefully a ton of bricks. Um, and I hope that it reads like a premonition for other regions. Cause we don't do anything about this. This stuff could happen anywhere. You know, you don't start dealing with homelessness on the West coast. You know, this could happen here. Um, you know, it's just we're we are we are pretending our way around around this problem because we don't want to deal with the systemic nature of white supremacy. I went to a conference at the Minneapolis Fed uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it was a conference about expanding housing supply. Like you know, places like San Francisco, everybody wants to move there. All the jobs are here. Like we don't have enough houses. If we build more houses, prices will go down, make things a little more affordable. Yeah, 
And to their credit, I think this is why they brought me there. You can't decouple that work from destroying white supremacy. You can't just like build more houses like they did build a bunch more houses in Sandtown for low-income people. It didn't totally change things. If you decouple the work of the affordable housing crisis or whatever you want to call it from the work of disrupting and dismantling white supremacist systems, nothing's going to change. up this episode of who belongs i'd like to thank our guest lawrence lanahan for joining me to talk about his new book the lines between us two families in a quest to cross baltimore's racial divide for a transcript of this interview please visit our new website at belonging.berkeley.edu slash who belongs thank you for listening <laughs>